So, Leviticus chapter 6, uh, verse 8 to 13. I won't read it again because Mark's uh, literally just read it, which is good. Um, so I assume that you've remembered everything that he's just read about this burnt offering uh, at the temple and how they're to keep it alight overnight uh, and just have that image in your head. But I want to start by saying there are two types of people in the world. And that's what I want to look at this morning briefly. There are two types of people. There are those that are very good at lighting the fire and there are those that are really good at keeping it burning. There are two types of people, those who are brilliant at achieving great short-term goals and those who can make long-term changes. There are those that are good at sprinting and there are those that can survive marathons. In fact, I heard of a woman, I think last year, who did something ridiculous like 27 marathons, one after the other over about a week or something. Hundreds, 300 miles of a run right across the country. Ridiculous, really, bless her. Whilst breastfeeding her newborn baby, which you just think is incredible. Well, no, you, whatever. Um, um, I was going to say things I didn't need to say then. <laughs> would have been too much information. Anyway, there are those people that can lose one whole stone in just a couple of weeks. And then there are those that are able to keep it off all year. There are those people that join the gym. And then there are those people that actually go. There are two types of people. There are those that, who through blood, sweat and tears can climb the very highest mountain and slide straight back down. And then there are those that can get to the top of the highest peak and just stay there and exist quite happily. It is, of course, a brand new year. In fact, it is a brand new decade. Ooh. I find New Year's Eve a bit of a disappointment, if I'm honest. Everyone does this, old Lang Syne. I know, I know the first line to old Lang Syne. I do a lot of this, and I go to bed because I'm tired. But it's a new decade. And so every year we kid ourselves, don't we, with uh, New Year's resolutions. In my first year here, I made the mistake of asking the congregation, who has made a New Year's resolution? There was a lot of this. Not me. Made any of those. So um, we don't do them in this church, clearly. Or we don't like to admit to them, perhaps. Maybe that's what it is. Um, but this is the time of year we kid ourselves. This year it's going to be better and different. And it's a new decade, so we're doubly kidding ourselves. This decade is going to be my decade. You wait till 2029 and the end of December that year. I'm going to be everything I've never been in the last 42 years. But we set goals in January that we know we won't keep. Passion for the new year writes checks that our lifestyle cannot possibly cash. That's an out-of-date illustration. I should have said, passion holds up a contactless card that we can't ping on them. Um, but we make lots of New Year's resolutions. And uh, I know you can't see that. It's kind of small. But, uh, and I won't ask for a hands up for which ones you're going to keep. Because uh, you may not want to admit to some of them. But straight away, I know this is out-of-date already. Uh, last year's one, but straight away people are going to eat healthier, I'm going to eat less, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to save more, spend less, I'm going to quit smoking, drink less, find another job, right at the bottom, spend more time with my family and friends. Wow, doesn't say very much about us, does it? Um, what's wrong with being slightly overweight and spending more quality time with your kids? As long as, you're, as long as you're nice and slender and muscular, but you don't spend any time with the family, but that's a different issue. But we make all these promises that we can't possibly keep. And the problem with it is as we light that initial fire that we don't keep burning, it all gets very depressing very quickly. I'll give you an example. I once decided to lose some weight. It was a long time ago. And uh, I, I Googled, because I'm sort of extreme. I don't have to do things for a long time. So I Googled how to lose one stone in one week. I know it's unhealthy, and I know Janice is already tutting, and Francis. Those in the medical profession are thinking, oh, 
Don't tell them where it is. I'll give you the, the address later. And I Googled it, and I found out how to lose one stone in one week, and I've got to tell you, it worked. I, I think I left three, lost three quarters in one week, and by Friday, I'd become a, a weight-loss fascist, telling everyone exactly what they were doing wrong. The problem with it is I had a goal at the top of the mountain that I achieved-ish. But you know I didn't have? A plan for what comes next. And in absence of a plan, I ate cake. I haven't really stopped. So I want to give you a thought for 2020. Because often we approach life and health and the future with a binge mentality, don't we? We kind of live unhealthy for a long time and then we binge healthiness. We binge uh, doing things better, knowing we can't sustain it, whereas a healthy lifestyle is far better. And the reason I want to say all of that is because what I want to talk about this morning is binge spirituality. Because it's very easy in January... Forget the, the fact that your stomach might be sticking out more than it did last year and all these other things. But often as Christians, we get to January and we say, this year, Lord, I'm going to pray every day for an hour. This year, I'm going to read through the entire Bible by January the 2nd, all in one afternoon. That's the sort of Christian I'm going to be every day. I'm going to tell seven people about Jesus. And you make these grand promises that we know our lifestyle won't allow us to keep. And the problem with it is that you can have great highs in January. You can really give it some on Sunday morning. The arms go up and you do this and you get excited and you feel God's presence. But you know that what you're doing is chasing the top of that mountain only to slide back down the other side very soon afterwards because your lifestyle, lifestyles don't allow for those great highs. We're left exhausted because we binge our spirituality and not change our lifestyle and put God where God deserves to be. What spiritual promises have you made this year? You don't have to tell me. But what spiritual promises have you already declared to God this year, Lord? I promise you this year, I'm definitely going to do that. And maybe already you can feel that passion beginning to wane. To fulfill great goals, even spiritual ones, we need a matching healthy lifestyle. And so Leviticus 6 is the passage chosen for this morning, a passage that I read in my quiet time just a, 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 about 10 days ago, which I found challenging and wonderful. Um, and it's the imagery of this passage I want to focus on, not necessarily uh, what it's saying about worship in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the Old Testament. But what does happen in Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, is all about how Israel worshipped God. Of course, Israel happens... The Old Testament is before Jesus, obviously. And the people before the cross, before the resurrection, before being saved by faith through the grace of God, they had to do various rituals to be right with a holy God. And they had this mobile temple called the tabernacle, a tent, if you like, in the middle of the desert. And surrounded, and in the center of that tent was one room where God's very presence was. It was like a little bit of heaven in a broken world. And that was the, the one place where God's holiness rested. And if they wanted to be near God's holiness and right with that holy God, they had this elaborate set of rituals and sacrifices and offerings they had to do in order to be right with God because they were sinful, broken people. They needed a mediator. They needed someone to make them clean. That's where Jesus comes in. But that's a, a different talk. And they had all these various rituals that they had to do. God watched them. God liked them. And God would respond and bless his people. And that's what the book of Leviticus is about. How... Sinful people before Jesus could be right with God and be in and around his presence. And there's a picture there. On the right is the sort of, they call it the tabernacle, sort of a mobile temple. And then at the front there is a picture of our burnt offering that we're talking about 
this morning. So they built this temple, uh, and then they would worship and they would offer rituals, sacrifices to God in place and for the sin of the people. And it was a really important thing to do. These rituals really mattered. At the end of Exodus, we read how Moses was unable to enter the tent where God's presence was. He couldn't go into where a holy God was. And so we're given this book of Leviticus, and all these elaborate rituals mean that actually Moses particularly can enter God's presence. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, we read how he enters that tent and communicates with God. And this burnt offering, which I want to just reference really quickly, uh, as an important part of that worship and that ritualistic process. And what really hit me as I read these verses is they had a two-step process. They had to put their sacrifice on that altar there, and they had to light it. That's not particularly difficult. They had to light it, up the flames go. But then they were commanded by God to keep the fire burning. Not just light it and go, ooh, ah, like a firework display, but then tend to it. Keep it going. Keep it burning. Keep it as big and impressive as God commanded it to be. And it really struck me, actually, because it's easy to light a fire that's impressive. It's easy to do something that looks good. It's easy to achieve something that feels good. It's much harder to have a lifestyle that matches that initial thing. It's much harder to keep the flame going than it is to light it initially. But we're called as Christians, as people, to be a people that keep the fire burning. And see, I believe God wants us to have a better rhythm of life. It seems to me most Christians oscillate between feeling like they've had cold water poured on their spirituality and they've gone out of fire, to being full of faith and full of fire and full of passion. We seem to be here one day and put out over here the next. And we can't seem to get the balance between being on fire for Jesus and full of faith and passion to feeling a bit like a damp squib with our spirituality. And maybe that's you. Maybe you oscillate between this one and that one. And when you're here, you make God all the promises you can because you want to be back there. And when you get there, you think, I can't keep this up. I'm doing something wrong. But I believe God calls us and wants each one of us to have a better rhythm of life, a better lifestyle where it's sustainable, where it's wonderful, where it's joyous, where it's not exhausting, where you know God's voice and you follow him and there's a smile on your face. Why not? We're called to have life abundantly, not life exhaustingly. I believe God wants us to be people that are able to keep the fire burning rather than just light it occasionally and sit down again. And two examples of where Christians have got it right and where Christians have got it wrong from the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, uh, the Galatian church were a good church. Paul, the apostle, started the church and they were all over at the beginning. When they first became Christians, when they heard about Jesus Christ, when they heard of the gospel, they took up this new faith with passion. The fire was lit and they were all over it. They saw miracles. God blessed them. Wonderful things happened. The fire was roaring in their hearts at the beginning. And maybe you know that feeling. You became a Christian. You had that initial moment when you asked Jesus into your life or you've come to church and you feel something. Yeah. But then something happened to these Christians. These slightly dodgy people came in and started saying, well, you've got to follow this law and that law and this law and that law. And that passion was tempered with ritual. Rituals they didn't need to follow. And before you know it, their faith that was once on fire, where they saw miracles and the Holy Spirit demonstrating the power of God on a daily basis, now became a fire that was going out before their very eyes. So Paul writes them this letter and he says the most challenging phrase. I don't often start my emails like this, but he says, You foolish Galatians, 
Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh, as in working. Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. They had that initial passion of knowing Christ as their saviour and they were well up for it, if you pardon the expression. They were well ready to change the world for the kingdom of God and preach the gospel. And these people came in and went, we don't want to do it that way. That's not quite how we do it. Calm down. And before you know it, these passionate Christians, the fire has just done that. How careful we need to be as brothers and sisters that we don't put the fire out in other people. How careful we must be that we never use phrases like, that's not what we do here. If it's done here, we do it here. And if it's done here and we don't do it here yet, then we all change. We change very quickly. Because this is our foundation. Not our traditions or what we like or what we don't like. All of that's secondary on a really major scale. So they had that roaring fire. And Paul says... You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's come in and told you something that sounds so persuasive that's so destructive? Who has taken that fire and poured the cold water of boring ritual all over it? Who has institutionalised you out of passion and flames and dynamism? The church should be the most dangerous place on earth. Christians should be the most dangerous people on the planet because we speak out the truth and we're unafraid of even death. And yet we don't. Often we stay within our kind of borders that we've made for ourselves. That's not how we should be. Who says? So that's the negative example of having the fire and letting it go out. And then this same man, Paul, writes to a young church leader, Timothy, a man named Timothy. And he writes to him about being a passionate, sustaining, on-fire Christian. So you've got one group that are going out. And then Paul writes to Timothy about how to keep that flame burning and it's this that we need to take away this morning because so often we do one step don't we we light the fire we make sure we come to all the prayer meetings we go to everything and the fire's lit but we're not very good at keeping the fire going and so Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy uh, sorry chapter 1 of 2 Timothy uh, verses 3 to 14 I'll read it all and I'll read it slowly I shall calm down for a second I'll read it slowly But this is a a bit of a chunk, but this is what Paul says to Timothy, this this young church leader. He says, I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of my testimony, of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, 
not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I am appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I was entrusted, what I entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And just four things which will be on the screen. Four things that Paul commands Timothy to do which take that flame of passionate faith and ensures that it never goes out. The first thing he commands him to do in verse 6 is to take the gifts God has given him and fan them into flame. I'll read it for you again. It says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God gives us spiritual gifts. Some Christians have no idea what their spiritual giftings are. And it's a great tragedy. God has given you a spiritual gift. If you know Christ is your saviour this morning, the Holy Spirit has given you a gift. It might be the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy or the gift of speaking in tongues or administration or discernment or one of the other many gifts listed in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians 12. But God has given you a spiritual gift. God has gifted you for his coming kingdom. And if you're a Christian you don't know it, you need to pray and pray and pray and speak to other Christians and see what God has put on your life. But that's not enough to say, oh, I've got a gift of healing. Or I've got a gift where I have prophetic words for people. That's not enough. That's the flame. But that soon goes out if you don't fan it into flame. And the only way you fan a gift into flame is through personal holiness and bold use. So if God has given you a gift, a particular gift, maybe one of those things or something else, a gift of encouragement, and you never encourage anybody, that flame will die down. If God has given you a gift of teaching and speaking and explaining the Bible and you never do it, guess what? The flame goes lower and lower and lower. And you will say, I had the gift and God never used it. That's not how it works. God has given you the gift, he wants you to use it. You need to say, Lord, what today? What else do you want me to do? He says, fan it into flame. Make it bigger. Don't make it smaller. What spiritual giftings has God given you? What passions has God given you that you know unmistakably his Holy Spirit calling on your heart? Don't just wait for something to happen. Prayerfully. Pray, of course. But begin to use it. Fan it into flame. Second thing he says is uh, in verse 8. And I'll read it before I speak. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, Paul then says, don't be ashamed. In other words, have confidence in what you believe. Don't be timid about this faith and what I'm suffering for. Don't be shy at what might happen to you. Be so confident about your faith in Christ that you want to join me in suffering for it. Suffering for Christians is the norm, by the way. Comfort for Christians is, is, is like death for us. We're a people that fight and suffer and die for our faith. We're not people that are comfortable. Comfortable Christians never last. Never last well anyway. But 
Those that are on the knife edge are the most wonderful people on the planet. And so Paul says, don't just be nervous about it, be confident in this faith that we've both got. And then once you're confident, join me. Don't be a kind of substitute waiting to come on. Get on the pitch and join me in the game. I only say that analogy because I went to see the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium yesterday. And I stood on the edge of the greatest stadium ever built in all of the world. And um, that's right, Andy's nodding. <laughs> Sorry, it's not Reading. They haven't got quite the same stadium. But, but you know, you're there, aren't you? And you could be on the, on the 11, on the pitch, losing the Champions League final. Um, or you could be on the sidelines watching. But wouldn't you want to be on the pitch? Wouldn't you be on the, running around, blood, sweat and tears, doing that for the team? Paul says, get your confidence in the gospel and then get over here in prison with me. Let's fight this thing. Let's fight this darkness. Let's preach this gospel. Come hell or high water, life or death, prison or freedom. Let's do this. This is where it's at. Fan that thing into flame. Number three, verse nine. Paul says this. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Again, there's that being saved and then being holy. Paul's saying to Timothy, yes, you've been saved. Yes, you're going to live forever. Yes, you've had your death turned into life. You've been freed from that kingdom that's passing away into the kingdom of light. You're a Christian. You're going to heaven when you die. Brilliant. But that's not it. You've got to then live a holy life. How many people accept Christ as their saviour, but they leave their life exactly as it was? It's almost like, Jesus, you've got to follow me now. I'm not following you. I'm doing this. This is how I live my life. And if this is going to work, sorry, uh, you've, got to, you've got to kind of fit in with me. That's not how it works in the slightest, is it? Jesus says, are we going over here now? And you've got to fit in with me. You pick up your cross and you follow me. It's you've been saved and now live like you've been saved. Live different to everyone else around you. Even if you end up in that prison we've just talked about. Even if you get that punishment and that persecution, don't worry about it. Because you've got to live differently. And then the final thing, verse 13. What you have heard from me, keep as, sound, keep as the sound... Sorry. It should be sort of stare and read, shouldn't it? What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And it sounds similar to the holy life bit I've just said, but actually Paul's saying here... What you've heard, what, you, what I've taught you about the gospel, don't change it when someone else comes along like the Galatians did. Keep this. This is sound doctrine. As a church, we face an unprecedented assault on biblical morals, on biblical ethics, on what is true and what is not true, what is good and what is bad. Our society wants us to redefine everything and just fit in. And whilst we may graciously not say a great deal because... It's hard to know what to say in the 21st century. This gospel, this theology, this Bible we've heard is the truth. And we are to keep it as solemn truth and not just go swaying around as culture leads us. We say, no, this is what the truth is. You're wrong. This is what you need to do. This is a mistake. This is the truth. And you need God's wisdom in your life. And I believe as our world unravels, there will be unprecedented opportunities for God's church to speak up about the goodness and the wisdom of God. So those four things, take your gift, fan it in the flame. Don't be confident in the gospel, but join in suffering. Um, don't just be saved, be holy. Listen to the truth and keep it. Keep it as sound teaching.
We're called to be people that, that have our salvation and do something with it. We're called to be people who repent and then believe. We're called to be people who believe and then get baptised. And I'm going to say this in January. Forgive me if it's a sticky issue for you. I believe if you've not been baptised but you believe in Christ, I believe that flame isn't going to get any bigger. I believe you need to be baptised the way we do it and I believe you need to go through that ritual which is a public declaration of your faith and I believe you need to do it in front of your friends and your family and tell them this is who I am, I'm a Christ follower. Put me in whatever prison you want, I don't care because I follow Christ. And that's what baptism does. You tell God, you tell the devil, you tell your friends and your family and even those who aren't sure and you say this is me. We believe and we are baptised. We're supposed to take up our cross and follow the King of Kings. We're supposed to desire the greater gifts with a loving heart. We're supposed to be people that stand firm and then we've done everything else. Keep on standing firm. 2020 already feels like a significant year, doesn't it? I mean, goodness, the other day World War III was trending on Twitter. Not quite sure how that works. But it was trending on Twitter, so we're expecting nuclear war with Iran any moment now, perhaps. I don't think we are. But that's how people are here. People are scared. We're worrying that this year is just going to spiral out of control. Australia is on fire. And we'll pray about that in the next couple of weeks and maybe do something to support that. But this really feels like a very significant year already, globally, but nationally. We're leaving the EU or doing something at the end of January. We've got national needs that get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Locally, we have problems, don't we? And even within the church, we have our own issues and things we've got to work through. The world needs its church to be shining, not just sometimes, but all night, all through the darkness until the dawn of God's coming kingdom arrives. We're witnesses to Jesus' death and his resurrection. We're proclaimers of the hope of heaven and the opportunity of forgiveness. We're supposed to be showing our love to our community, the love of God, to be so radically Christ-centered as a community, as a community of believers that when people walk past they want in, they say, you are so different, this is so wonderful, I don't know what it is that's going on here, but I want it, and I want what you've got. And then we invite them to Alpha and we explain what we have and who we follow. So this year, let me end by saying this. Our month of prayer isn't a month off church stuff. It's a month on. Come. Don't just come on your connect group night. Come every night if you can. Even if you can stay 15 minutes on the way somewhere else. Come and pray. Come and ask God to pour out his spirit on our church, on our town. May this year be the year where the name of Jesus is resting on our lips with each other. When we finish in here and we go in there, let's not talk about the football immediately. Um, let's make sure we talk about Jesus. Let's talk about what you've just heard or what we've just sung or what God has done that week or what you hope God will do next week. Go home and think about those people that should be invited to Alpha. Pray for them. Say, God, give me an opportunity. Let's make this year a year where this church takes another step forward. This is an exciting year for us as a church. We have our new youth worker starting fairly soon, and we'll uh, say a bit more about that in the next two weeks. But that's an exciting development. Things are exciting last year. Our building project kind of rumbles on in the background. It's exciting stuff. There's more things that people want to do. This church could be something genuinely special if we are people that are always on fire. So it rests on us. Georgia sent me a sermon of somebody else's um, I don't know if I should take that personally or not. Um, <laughs> as a joke, sorry. Um, sent me a sermon of a guy talking about revival. And he ended his talk by saying, if you want God to revive your town and your city, if you want God to do amazing things, draw a circle around yourself and say, Lord, start here. And when he's done that, 
then you can be sure more will happen afterwards. God starts with us. And we need to be people that keep the fire burning. Let me end with an illustration. Or a fire hazard, one of the two. It's easy to do this. That's dangerous, isn't it? If I drop that on the floor, the church goes up in flames. It's tempting. And it looks impressive. If you turn all the lights off, you would see this from quite some distance. And that's how most people live their Christian lives. They put a lot of effort in, there's a lot of friction, there's lots of getting things done and making lots of changes, and they're exhausted by the time they've lit the flame. And they light the flame, and in the end, it goes out. Because they're trying to do their spirituality with their own strength. This is not the right candle, but you get the point. There's a better way, isn't there? Imagine this is a real flame. But actually, it's possible to be a light for longer. Because in here, isn't your strength or your own friction or hard work. It's the power of God. There's power in here, and that's what keeps this flame alight. How many of us in this room are living life running on empty? Living our spirituality running on empty, hoping against hope this match will be the one that stays lit, knowing it's not going to. We need to make space in 2020 for God to be at the heart of everything we do. Making space for him every day. Making him our priority, not anything else. He is first, everything else is second, third and fourth. And this flame will stay lit, stay lit for longer. Let me pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this morning. Lord, just as we come to take communion now, Father God, I pray that you would just lighten us a fire that burns so bright. Lord, a passion that is so strong, Lord, not because we want to be a certain kind of Christian. Lord, we renounce any form of following others. Lord, we want to follow Christ and Christ alone. We don't want to be a particular kind of church. We just want to be one, Lord, where your spirit works. Lord, according to his will, your will, for your kingdom. And Lord, we're ordinary Christians in this room. Lord, some of, us, some of us feel below ordinary. Some of us feel like we've let you down far too often. Lord, we light the fire, but sometimes we put it out. Yet, Lord, you call us to be a light for you, a city on a hill, shining in the darkness. Lord, our world is increasingly dark. People are increasingly angry. They look for a cause to fight against. And, Lord, they often get it wrong. They need to know you. Lord, we know you. But, Lord, if we're, our light has been snuffed out, then, Lord, we will never, ever tell them. And I pray in 2020, Lord, you will light a fire in this church that is so strong, so bright, so powerful. That, Lord, we will go and tell people of the good news of Christ, but they will come to hear for themselves as well. Lord, be with us now as we take communion. Lord, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.